Hey, good morning, everybody. I'm Steve Jones, the preaching minister here at Vera Christian Church. We're glad to have you. Glad for those who are joining us live stream. You know, they've already got me crying here, and we haven't even got to the blessing, which is the last song that we're going to sing. Do we have any country music fans? Yeah, we got some. Okay, so you may be able to help me out. I'm going to feed you some lyrics from a, a country song that was a hit in 2003 by Dirk Bentley, and I may ask you to kind of fill in a blank when I stop here and there. Becky was a beauty from South Alabama. Her daddy had a heart like a nine-pound. <laughs> we do have some country music fans there. I'm not, but I'm married to one, so I know these songs. Think, think he even did a little time in the slammer. What was I thinking? She snuck out one night and met me by the front gate. Her daddy came out waving that 12-gauge. We tore out the drive. He peppered my tailgate. What was I I know what I was feeling, but what was I thinking? Yes, what was I thinking? So our Christmas series is what was Jesus thinking? We're not talking about what we're thinking, what I was thinking, but what was Jesus thinking during what we call Christmas? As four messages in this series. Last Sunday, we talked about why even ask that question. And we said because the thoughts of Jesus, they're normative for us. They are transformative for us. They're informative for us. So it's important for us to think Jesus' thoughts after him. But today we want to delve a little bit more into what Jesus was actually thinking. Luke chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, we read, And while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for Mary's baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room, no lodging available for them. Those are the basic bare bones facts of Christmas with which we are familiar, but we're trying to get behind those facts a little bit. Theologian Jack Cottrell, in his book, The Faith Once for All, Systematic Theology Book, on the chapter about God lists 22 attributes of God or 22 characteristics of God. But I think he may have left one out. Let me read to you these 22 characteristics very quickly. See if you can pick out the one that maybe he left out. First, immutability, which means God is unchanging. Aseity, that means he is self-existent. God is spirit. God is three. God is infinite, eternal, righteous, transcendent, sovereign, omnipotent, wise, good, omnipresent, imminent, glorious, holy, loving, jealous, wrathful, merciful, patient, and gracious. 22 attributes of God. Did he leave anything out? Well, I would say maybe humility. Maybe humility. Now, I'm not saying Jack Cottrell was wrong. He's forgotten more theology than I'll ever know. And humility is not the first thing that springs to mind when one thinks of God. After all, he's rather insistent on being worshipped and all. But when we think of God leaving the glories of heaven and coming to earth as a human baby, then yes, humility seems plausible. We ask the question, what was Jesus thinking at Christmas? One of the things he was thinking is humbly. He was thinking humbly. I want to say two things this morning about the humility of Christ. Just two points today, two things. Number one, Christ's humility is canonic. You might be thinking, oh, Steve, not another one of those kinds of sermons. Yes, we got a big theology word in there, canonic. But by the time we're done, I hope you love that word as much as I do. Let's get the passage before us, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. This is a Christmas passage in Scripture, but not one we often turn to. Paul writes, Christ Jesus 
who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, this is where we get this attribute of God, humility, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now clearly, Paul teaches here that Jesus of Nazareth is equal with God. He did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. He's in the very form of God. John 1.1 puts it this way. Kent read that before one of our songs. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in the Greek, that's logos. That is translated Word. That's God, and that's who became baby Jesus. And in the process of becoming a baby, the logos emptied himself. That word emptied in the original language is kanao, kanao. And the process of emptying oneself is kenosis. You say, well, Steve, why don't you just say then emptied himself instead of the, the kenosis and kanao? Because it's, it's cooler and hipper to say kenosis and, or kenotic. I really like that word. So in the process of emptying himself, Christ took on some limitations, some limitations. For instance, the Logos and the glories of heaven never got hungry, but Jesus got hungry. Right? The, the Logos never got thirsty, but Jesus got thirsty. The Logos was never tempted in the glories of heaven, but Jesus was tempted. So these are limitations. I like the way Jack Cottrell puts this, back to theologian Jack Cottrell. What does it mean to say that the Logos emptied himself? Basically, it has to do with function, not essence. Though the Logos continued to be equal with God in his nature, as the incarnate Son of God, he voluntarily laid aside the prerogatives, privileges, and advantages of deity and chose instead to experience the limitations of human life. Even in the role of a servant, he didn't selfishly insist on his rights as a divine being. He didn't cling to the glories and luxuries of his divine status. Instead, the unselfish prince volunteered to live as a pauper. He didn't give up the possession of the divine attributes, nor entirely their use, but rather the independent exercise of those attributes. He made himself nothing, kenosis. How did he do this? Not by subtracting something from his divine nature, but by adding something to it. By taking the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men. We talked about this a little bit last week. The theologians say that Jesus Christ had two natures. He was fully God and fully man. He had a divine nature, but the Logos had also taken on a human nature. One center of consciousness with two natures. And in doing so, he limited himself. So I call this subtraction by addition. By adding that nature, he actually had limited himself. Now we can understand this. Let me suggest an analogy. The analogy is not perfect, but I think it might help us to understand. Let's say that you are a single man. And as a single man, you enjoy freedom. Total freedom, right? You don't have to ask anybody's permission to go somewhere. You can go anywhere you want to go. You can eat anything you want to eat and as much of it as you want to. You can stay up as late as you want. You can sleep in in the morning and you have total control of the TV remote. 
Now, so all this great freedom. Now, let's say as a single man, you decide to take a wife. You're going to get married. So you're adding another person to your family. And the two become one. You're one, but you've got a man now and a woman. Now, let me ask you this question. In so doing, have you increased your freedom or have you decreased your freedom? Do not answer that out loud. But let me give you a scripture to help you answer that question. 1 Corinthians 7.32. I don't have a runny nose. I was just crying during that last song. And now it's, I'm all messed up. I'm going to have to come in next service after the song service. 1 Corinthians 7.32. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. But a married man must think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. Less freedom, my friends. I call that subtraction by addition. Now, before you accuse me of being a misogynistic sexist, I will read the next verse. A married woman has to think about how to please her husband. It's the same deal for the ladies. Subtraction by addition. Heaven forbid you should add in a couple of kids in that equation. You're adding, and as a result, what you have even more responsibilities and limitations, and some of you go out and get a dog or a cat. What were you thinking? Why would you do that? Well, hopefully we're thinking about love. We're doing that out of love. And that's exactly why Christ did that. He subtracted from his freedom by adding a human nature, but he did that out of love. Now let's diagram this verse or this passage, Philippians 2, 6 through 7. Although X, he existed in the form of God, he did not Y, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but Z, emptied himself. The narrative pattern there is all, although X, not Y, but Z. And the semantic pattern is though, although status, not selfishness, but selflessness. So X is status, Y is selfishness, and Z is selflessness. Although status equal with God, did not, why, selfishness, exploit that equality, but Z, selflessly, became a human being. Although X, not Y, but Z, although status, not selfishness, but selflessness. This is what Jesus did at Christmas, and this is what he was thinking, humbly and kenosis, emptying himself in humility. Now, we're going to come back to that pattern. But it leads me to my second point. I just have the two points today. And the first one was Christ's humility is kenotic. So remember that. Kenosis means to empty oneself. The second thing about Christ's humility is it is exemplary. It's exemplary. It is our example. This humble kenosis is our example. Philippians 2.5. In this verse, this precedes the passage 6 through 8 that we read. Paul is making an application here for us about the humility of Christ. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. We are to have the same mindset, the same attitude, the same thought process that Jesus manifested, that the Logos manifested when he left his glories in heaven and became incarnated in flesh 
as a human baby, that whole humble kenosis, that's our attitude. It's exemplary for us. The Apostle Paul followed this pattern in his ministry, and it's reflected in his writing. Let me give you two or three examples. 1 Thessalonians 2.7. As apostles of Christ, we could have used our authority to make you help us, but we were very gentle with you. Although X, not Y, but Z. Although status, not selfishness, but selflessness. Although status, as apostles, that's his status. Not selfishness. We could have used our authority to make you help us, but selflessness. But we were very gentle with you. See the pattern. Here's a second one. Now here in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church about he and Barnabas' right to receive financial support for the, from the Corinthian church as full-time kingdom workers, but they, they decided to forego this right. And so he writes in 1 Corinthians 9, 12, surely we have this right too, but we don't use this right. No, we endure everything ourselves so that we will not stop anyone from obeying the good news of Christ. Although X, not Y, but Z. Although status, not selfishness, but selflessness. Although status, surely we have this right, not selfishness, but we don't use this right, but selflessness, we endure everything ourselves. And then a third example. Now in Philemon, the Apostle Paul is writing to Philemon, the Christian slave owner, to tell him to do the right thing by his Christian slave Onesimus. And here's the way he puts it, Philemon 1.8. There is something that you should do, Philemon, and because of the authority I have in Christ, I feel free to command you to do it, but I'm not commanding you, I'm asking you to do it out of love. Although X, not Y, but Z. Although status, not selfishness, but selflessness. Although status, because of the authority I have in Christ, I feel free to command you, not selfishness, but I'm not commanding you, but selflessness. I'm asking you to do it out of love. Michael Gorman calls this Paul's master story. Here in this Philippians 2, 6 through 8, when he describes what Christ did, it's his master story. It's reflected not only in Philippians, but it's reflected in his practice and in the rest of his letters. So Paul makes the application for us, as I said, about what Jesus did at Christmas in the preceding verses. Let's look at those again. Verse 5, Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. This is the XYZ formula with one significant change. It's not although status, it's because. It's not although, it's because of the humility of Christ, our standard. Because you have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, because X, not selfishness, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but selflessness. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So in other words, this is what Christ did. When the Logos left heaven and became a baby human, he was counting others more important than himself. That would be us. He was looking not to his own interest, but to the interest of humanity, to our interests. 
He is the gold standard of humility. And Paul said he is our example. So there's an attitude and an action in this application. The attitude is that we are to think of others, everyone, as more important than ourselves. That's the attitude. That's the attitude of humility. And the action is that we are look, to look not only to our own interests, but we are to look to the interests of others. In 1999, in the Phoenix Open, a golf tournament, Tiger Woods drove drive on the 13th hole of the final round, put him behind a three-foot-tall, 1,000-pound boulder. The boulder was in the way of his next shot. Under the rules of golf, any loose impediment can be moved if it's not fixed, growing, or solidly embedded. The official ruled that the boulder could be moved. However, it weighed 1,000 pounds. So what do you think happened next? Some of you know. Tiger Woods turned to the gallery and said, could I get some help? Almost immediately, 12 guys sprang out of the gallery and put their shoulder to the boulder and moved it out of the way. One of those guys turned to the camera and said, I'll move a boulder for Tiger Woods any day. And even now, there's a plaque there to this day that says something to the effect that this boulder was moved in 1999 for Tiger Woods by the gallery. Now, let me ask you a question. It's just a hypothetical. If that had been you playing golf, you're out there playing golf, or I'm out there playing golf, and we hit a shot and it lands behind a 1,000-pound boulder, are, are we going to be able to do that? Do you think that you could round up a dozen guys and say, hey, uh, I don't want to take a penalty. Could you help me move this boulder out of the way? You think that's going to happen for you? No, that's no way. Why not? Because you're not worth it. <laughs> you're not worth it. I'm not worth it. We're, we're not Tiger Woods. I'm not a bazillionaire. We're not, we're not famous. We're not beloved by half the world. That's simply not going to happen. But, but here's my point, and here's the thing. Sometimes when we're dealing with people, we do this kind of mental calculus. It may be someone who needs a helping hand. They might need a word of encouragement. They might need a chunk of our time. And, you know, and we start thinking, well, wait a minute. Is, how important is this person? Are they worthy of my help? Are they ever going to be able to return the favor? Is anybody going to see what I'm doing here and maybe give me a, a pat on the back? You ever talking to someone, you're shaking your hand, and you're, talk, you're talking to them, and, you're, and, and you realize while they're talking to you, they're looking around so maybe they can trade up with someone more important than you? And what Paul teaches right here is everybody is a VIP. Think of others, everybody, as more important than yourself. Look not only to your own interest, but to the interest of others. If we can do for them, then we do for them. That's what Jesus teaches us, among other things, at Christmas time. Kenosis. When I think of kenosis, uh, I think a great example is Henri Nguyen. Nguyen, a Catholic priest, was born and died in the Netherlands. He taught theology at Notre Dame, Yale, and Harvard. He wrote 40 books, 40 on the spiritual life that have sold millions of copies and been translated into dozens of languages. He lived a life of prestige, privilege, affirmation, and accomplishment. But 
In his later years, he voluntarily left all of that to minister at a community where persons with physical and intellectual disabilities and their caregivers lived together. Nguyen was paired with Adam Arnett, a young resident who was gripped by frequent seizures and could neither speak nor move without assistance. Nguyen assisted Adam with morning bathing, dressing, eating, and preparing for the day. The priest faced dimensions of himself he'd never faced. He writes, at first I kept asking myself and others, why am I doing this? Why did I say yes? What am I doing here? Who is this stranger who is demanding such a big chunk of my time each day? And the answer was always the same. So you can get to know Adam. How would I get to know him? Adam could not speak or even move without assistance. It usually took me two hours to get Adam up and out of his bedroom, into the bathroom, out of the bathroom, into the kitchen, out of the kitchen, into his wheelchair, and off to his day program. And when I had finally delivered him there, I felt a deep sense of relief and went to work doing what I can do well, talking, dictating letters, counseling, making phone calls, leading meetings, and giving sermons, and presiding over ceremonies. That was the world where I felt at ease and capable. But as I worked with Adam, I began to see myself differently, away from the cacophony of modern life and the contemporary culture in the silent presence of Adam. I found love, friendship, belonging, and community. I saw that Adam can give and receive love. All my life had been shaped by words, ideas, books, and encyclopedias, but now my priorities were shifting. What was becoming important for me was Adam and our privileged time together when he offered me his body in total vulnerability, when he gave me himself. Adam kept telling me in such a quiet way, just be with me and trust that this is where you have to be and nowhere else. Now, some of you, some of you have been a caregiver or are in very similar type of situations, and you know what that feels like. Do you see Jesus in that story? I see him in two ways. Uh, first of all, I see him in Adam Arnett, the one who is totally dependent for his vital needs on others. That is what the Logos did when he left his glories in heaven and became a baby that others needed to feed and protect and nurture and clothe. He made himself vulnerable and dependent. But also, obviously, an Henri Nguyen, living a life of prestige and fame and comfort to empty himself in humility, to care for another person who was never going to be able to return any of that to him other than love, and friendship. This is a, a passage where the story of Christmas, the lesson, is applied to us in everyday life. This humble kenosis is how we are to relate to our spouse, how we are to relate to our children and our parents and to our neighbors, our friends, and our enemies. Yes, and even our pets. Humble kenosis. Self-emptying for someone else. That's what I think Jesus was thinking at Christmas. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, we, we thank you, God, that you've given us such a striking example of humility. When the second person of you, the Godhead, humbly emptied himself on our behalf, we pray, Lord, that we simply have the courage to follow that example today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.